Good afternoon, everyone, or good morning to those of you on the West Coast, and welcome to the Aspen Institute Economic Opportunities Programs webinar. The title for our event today is Planning for a Post-COVID-19 Economy, How Worker Ownership Can Boost Job Quality and Build Resilience. I'm Joyce Klein. I'm the director of the Business Ownership Initiative within the Aspen Institute's Economic Opportunities Program. So I'm part of the team at EOP, as we call ourselves. Um, I'd like to thank you for joining us today. We're really pleased by the, the strong registration for this session. We had almost 1,000 folks who registered, but I presume we'll have um, close to 500 uh, actually joining us today. So real strong interest uh, in the topic for today's webinar. And we have a trio of really extraordinary presenters and we're gonna get to them soon. Um, but first, I wanna start by noting our deep appreciation for the support of Prudential Financial in bringing you this job quality and practice webinar series. Prudential and our valued colleague there, Sarah Kay, have played an instrumental role in supporting all of EOP's job quality work and we're deeply appreciative of their commitment to job quality and also um, to an inclusive economy. This is actually the sixth webinar in our job quality and practice series. So for those of you who are new, welcome. And for those of you who have joined us before, it's great to have you back again. Um, this series is designed to support organizations that are working in a variety of disciplines related to economic opportunity. So that includes folks working in worker advocacy and workforce development and economic development and capital deployment, policymakers, business folks in the business community, to address job quality in the work that they do. And the webinars share actionable tools and approaches. They highlight the work of leading practitioners in this area. And we hope that they spark new ideas and fresh thinking around opportunities to advance job quality. And you can learn more about our job quality and practice work and find links to the previous webinars um, at the link here, um, the as.pn backslash job quality practice. I'd also note that today's webinar is part of a full suite of EOP job quality activities. And in particular, I wanna note um, that last week we launched a job quality tools library, which is a compendium of practical tools and resources for organizations that wanna learn more about how to build a job quality focus into their work. And so if you haven't had a chance to visit that, please do so, perhaps right after the webinar. Um, the link to that is also here in terms of the job quality tools link you see here. Um, uh, so um, please explore that at, at, as soon as you can. Um, now, a little bit in terms of our technology before we get into our content, I know that many of us are probably more familiar with Zoom these days than we want to be. Um, but just in case, a few things to note. Um, we are using the webinar format in Zoom, which means that all attendees are muted. Um, you can listen through your computer. For those of us who are having bandwidth issues, if you're having any trouble with the audio, sometimes it helps to actually join by phone as well and use the phone audio rather than the, the computer audio and you can still view things on your computer. Um, you can use the Q&A box on the bottom of the Zoom window to, su to submit comments or questions. We're, we do have time at the end um, to take questions um, and to put them to the presenters. Um, given the numbers who are attending, we probably won't get to all the questions, but you can upvote questions so we can get to those that are some of the most popular. Um, if you have technology issues, you can chat with Tony Mastria on our team via the chat function. Or if you're having trouble on your computer access, try emailing eop.program at aspenins.org um, and share your technical issues that way. Um, I'd also note that the video, the webinar is being recorded and the recording and the slide deck will both be available on our website following the event. Um, and one of the things that I want to point out is that I already shared some links with you. You'll have, you'll see links to other content and resources that the presenters are sharing. You don't have to scramble to write those down because the links will be in, um, in the slide deck that will be posted. Um, and finally, to note that closed captions are available. So if you wanna, um, if you wanna activate those, you can click the bottom at the button at the bottom of your screen to do that. Um, so let's get into our content for today. Um, we find ourselves today in some really extraordinary times as we confront the COVID-19 pandemic and the resulting extreme economic deterioration that that's, that's creating. We've seen unemployment skyrocket. Um, literally millions who had a fairly secure economic foundation are now struggling to pay for housing, food, healthcare, and other basics because they've been unemployed. 
Um, many frontline workers who are working in essential jobs and were already to struggle, struggling to pay for the basics because of the wage levels and quality of those jobs are now risking illness um, by being in those jobs. I think certainly looking forward, many of us are concerned about what a prolonged economic recession or perhaps even depression will mean for job quality for frontline workers across the economy. Um, and I, I would note that as we think about this issue, it's also important to recognize that frontline workers represent a broad and diverse group of people. Um, among frontline workers, Black and Latino workers face systemic racial biases that mean that they're often overrepresented in, front, uh, in frontline jobs such as healthcare, retail, food service. And in part for that reason, they have been disproportionately affected by COVID-19. Um, women across and within these racial groups are also concentrated in frontline jobs. Um, and from a, a sort of a, a spatial or, or place-based dimension, we know that there are many rural communities that have struggled already from years of economic disinvestment. And while COVID-19 has been less prevalent in some of those communities, there are also others that have been really highly impacted for a variety of reasons. So um, employee ownership models have in the past played a key role in local economies. We think they have an important one going forward as we face the economic challenges that are created by this pandemic. Um, employee ownership has been demonstrated to boost job quality, uh, to enable local businesses to survive and to retain local ownership um, over time, to build wealth and address wealth inequities, and, and through all that to really bake in greater resilience for economies, communities, and families. And so what we want to do today is to explore the role that employee ownership can play in light of current and future economic realities. So in terms of our agenda today, as I mentioned, we have three outstanding leaders of the field. Um, I will sh give you their full titles and bios as we hear from them, but they include Joseph Wasi from Rutgers University, Allison Lingain from Project Equity, and Tomas Duran from Concerned Capital. And each of them is going to speak for about 10 minutes to, um, on some questions that we asked them to touch upon. Um, you'll hear across those presentations what, about what we know from national research on the value of employee share ownership and participation. You'll hear directly from folks working directly in communities and with businesses to expand employee ownership. And then we're going to take audience questions. So um, we're going to get right into our discussion. Um, we're going to start with Joseph. Um, our first presenter is Joseph Blasi. Joseph is the J. Robert Beister Distinguished Professor and Director of the Institute for the Study of Employee Ownership and Profit Sharing at Rutgers University. Um, and we're delighted to have Joseph. He's one, truly one of, if not the nation's foremost expert on employee capital share strategies. Um, and just uh, in terms of, as we use that term capital share strategies, we include broad-based employee stock ownership, profit sharing, gain sharing, stock options in that broad category. Um, Joseph's also a longtime partner with and friend of the Economic Opportunities Program. Um, and he's going to share some of the research on capital shares as it relates to issues of job quality, but also some key other key outcomes that relate to the circumstances we're confronting today. So Joseph, welcome and uh, take it away. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, so I'm delighted to be here uh, with you today. Uh, I'm going to go to the next slide. and. Uh, First, I want to give an idea of uh, some of the metrics uh, on employee share ownership in the country. Uh, so according to the National Foundation's uh, general social survey, about 20% uh, of all adult workers have access to employee share ownership at their workplace. This would be either through ESOPs, employee stock purchase plans, worker cooperatives, equity compensation, typically in publicly traded companies uh, like restricted stock plans uh, uh, and other forms. Uh, as I said, ESOPs are among the most common, uh, although equity comp plans are very common uh, in the public uh, stock market, and worker cooperatives are a growing phenomenon, especially among uh, modest income workers. ESOPs currently cover about 11 million employees in just over 6,000 companies, with the total value of employee ownership per employee that's before the crisis being about $130,000. I should note that most of the uh, majority owned employee owned firms in the country uh, are in closely held, closely held companies, okay? Because ESOPs are mostly used by retiring business owners to sell successful businesses to the employees to main jobs, maintain jobs in those communities. 
Although we should note that in firms uh, like uh, Exxon, Chevron, Ford, and others, there are smaller ESOPs, two, three, five, uh, in the case of Procter & Gamble, maybe close to five to 10% ESOPs, where the employees also may hold as much as $130,000, but the percent of ownership of the whole company is, is, is very modest. Recent uh, approaches to employee ownership uh, emphasize two positive features for modest income workers. First, the chance to build some capital and wealth in addition on top of wages. Uh, most of the research we show indicates that uh, the employee share ownership comes on top of wages, uh, top of market wages. And secondly, the opportunity to participate more fully in the workplace where you work. So we'll go to the next slide. I'll give a little bit more detail uh, about this. So there's been quite a lot of research on employee share ownership uh, in downturns, uh, which we appear to uh, believe we're in right now. Uh, in a population study of all the ESOPs in the United States founded between 1988 and 1994 using Dun & Street data, this is a study that I did with several colleagues, among them uh, Professor Doug Cruz from Rutgers, we compared ESOP companies to all ESOP company, all non-ESOP companies that were matched according to size uh, in industry. And we found that 10 years later, by 1999, the ESOP firms were more likely to survive and less likely to go bankrupt. Uh, by coincidence, as you recognize, this was the period just preceding the early 2000s recession. So in this Dun & Bradstreet study, when we compared the ESOP to the non-ESOP companies, the ESOP companies were more likely to maintain their, uh, their employment with a 1% uh, change in employment over the period compared to a minus 3.3 reduction by non-ESOP firms. It appears that ESOP firms do a variety of things, among them maybe work sharing, to balance out their uh, employment instabilities. Uh, just recently, uh, two colleagues uh, and fellows of our institute, uh, Professors Fidan Kurtulis and Doug Cruz, uh, uh, in a W.E. Upjohn uh, Employment Institute study, looked at the last two recessions, uh, uh, 1999, between 1999 and 2011, but they looked only at stock market companies that had modest uh, ESOPs and other employee ownership programs. And they compared them to companies without employee ownership in the stock market. And they rediscovered again that there's greater employment stability and lower layoffs uh, among the employee owners as the next start chart shows. So we'll go to the next chart and we'll look at the comparison of non-employee owners in orange and employee owners uh, in um, or, uh, in, in blue. And we can see a several hundred percent difference uh, in, uh, uh, in layoffs. Okay, we're gonna go to the next chart now. And uh, so related to this question of, of thinking about the role for um, uh, modest income workers, uh, we just completed a three-year uh, W.K. Kellogg Foundation Rutgers study. Uh, and we found that employee share ownership had enormous potential for significant increases in wealth among modest income workers, especially women and, uh, and minorities. Our team interviewed mainly African-American workers at ESOPs uh, throughout the country. This was a qualitative study. It was the largest study. We had a team of 22 people going across the country doing very in-depth uh, interviews uh, uh, led by our fellow uh, uh, Janet Bogoslotz. A really fascinating study and the reports available if you wanna search for Kellogg and Rutgers um, uh, you, should, you should find it uh, on the internet. Now recently, data from 2014 and 2018, again, the National Science Foundation's General Social Survey indicates uh, uh, in terms of job quality, some initial findings about ESOPs. Uh, ESOPs tend to have more defined benefit plans, pretty surprising. They tend to have more profit sharing. 70% of workers in ESOPs uh, have profit sharing, really remarkable, more gain sharing, more employee involvement teams, more training in the last year, and more performance-based pay like profit sharing and gain sharing that comes to over 10% on top of salary. Um, they also tend to have a second diversified retirement plan in addition to the employee share ownership, which is very, very important because a key criticism of, of employee share ownership has been that there's too little diversification. We have a second diversified retirement plan and you have market wages and the employee ownership is on top of market wages. And then there's a second retirement plan that doesn't eliminate, but it, it modulates some of this risk issue. 
We'll learn more about these job quality issues in a new program that we have launched, uh, a new research project uh, on behalf of the Ford Foundation that will be studying job quality in detail uh, in ESOP companies that my colleague, Dr. Adria Scharf, who is a Beister Fellow at Rutgers, um, uh, will be now leading. And uh, you'll be able to follow that study uh, and case studies related to it on our curriculum library for employee ownership, uh, clio.rutgers.edu. So we'll go to the next slide. <clears throat> so it's still too early to know whether the repeatedly confirmed greater employment stability of ESOPs and employee owners that we found in research over the last decade and a half will hold during the pandemic. Rutgers is now uh, working with a nationally recognized social survey firm to compare a thousand ESOP small and medium-sized firms uh, uh, with the cooperation of the Employee Ownership Foundation that will help with surveying them uh, to a thousand non-ESOP firms uh, with similar employment in similar industries. Uh, we're gonna be looking at their access to federal aid, how specifically they reacted to this crisis and responded to it. And we're also hoping uh, to work with the Democracy at Work Institute to include uh, worker cooperatives in this study. So uh, I'm not gonna make any guesses or predictions. We should have some really good empirical data. Um, we do know that after robust economic growth uh, before 2020, most closely held ESOPs received a last quarter 2019 valuation of their stock that was likely among the highest valuation that they ever received. And the next valuation is likely to be lower. Although I should note that closely held ESOPs are not as exposed to the public stock market as a public stock market company where the stock is going up and down, up and down daily. But this is something that research will tell us about exactly what happened. Let's go to the next, uh, to the next slide. And I think the next slide is to say thank you very much uh, for joining, joining me today. And if you want to learn more about our institute, you can just uh, Google Institute for the Study of Employee Ownership and Profit Sharing. And I look forward to the discussion and the comments of my colleagues. Thank you. Terrific. Well, thank you, Joseph, for sharing that. And I think just a, you know, a few things I'd highlight. The first is that um, you and your colleagues at Rutgers with, and many other colleagues you work with have done an amazing job of really establishing a research, research base that gives us a lot of insights into the value of employee ownership and has shown that it has really broad effects in job quality of, among many of the dimensions of job quality that we tend to look at and think about within EOP and with many of our, our colleagues that, that are concerned about this issue. Um, so I think that's really important. And, and we, we see the broad job, job quality effects. We've also seen that typically employee-owned firms have been really resilient in downturns. Of course, this one's really different. So we'll see what happens, but it's great to know that you're gonna be tracking that. So. Um, so that's sort of a research perspective for folks. And now we wanted to do is um, let you hear from two practitioners who have been working on the ground to help companies move towards employee ownership. So we're going to start with Allison Lingain. Um, Allison is the co-founder, along with Hilary Abel, of Project Equity. And Allison is also a job quality fellow with our Economic Opportunities Program. So, um, but in terms of Project Equity, it works with partners around the country to raise awareness about employee ownership and also provides hands-on consulting and support to business owners that are interested in transitioning to employee ownership and also works with the employee owners as they take um, as they take ownership of the company uh, helps them through that process. And last year, um, in addition with seed funding from the Quality Jobs Fund, Project Equity launched the Accelerate Employee Ownership, which is an investment fund um, that supports transition. So Allison, um, thanks for joining us. Allison's going to talk a little bit about what she sees as some of the challenges and opportunities that the crisis has created with respect to engaging companies around adopting shared ownership strategies and also talk a little bit about the kinds of partners that can play a role in helping to identify companies that can be good candidates for employee ownership and how to connect them to, to resources. So take it away, Allison. Wonderful. Thank you, Joyce. I'm so very pleased to be, be able to join this conversation today. Thank you to the Aspen Institute and to Prudential for your support of the Economic Opportunities Program. Um, so after listening to Joseph, isn't it just so easy to fall in love with employee ownership? 
right? Like there's nothing not to love about it. Um, I've been asked to share a story and I've chosen one that shows the human impact, um, particularly in this time of crisis. Recology has been employee owned since 1986 and they have over 3,800 employee owners. Um, they're the primary waste management service provider in the city of San Francisco and also work in different locations in California, Oregon, and Washington. Now, Recology is a great company in many ways, including how it is responding in the current crisis. Under its Recology Recovers policy, the company is currently paying all employees their full salary and benefits, even if the company is not able to provide them with full schedules. We asked Recology if there was anything that they wanted to share about the role of employee ownership in the response to the crisis or the future economic challenges. And they shared that their decision-making process is different than what you might see in a publicly traded company. Um, whether crisis situation or not, they don't have public shareholders assessing their financial situation with a short-term single point in time lens. Instead, they naturally look at today and tomorrow and the years ahead when making their decisions. In addition, many of their employee owners live in the communities they serve. So that means they're not only serving the community, um, but they're members of the community. So when the community is hurting, they're hurting. When the community needs help, they help. The data shows that employee-owned businesses build strong communities by prioritizing their workers and their community's needs. And Recology is a, is a living example of that. Next slide, please. We saw a need to have all of this amazing data in one place, um, and Project Equity is about to release a new white paper it's called The Case for Employee Ownership, um, authored by my co-founder, Hilary Abel, that does pull together a summary of the most up-to-date research. You can download this executive summary and uh, sign up to be notified when the full paper is available, we expect in a week or so, um, at project-equity.org slash white paper. Um, so we find that employee ownership is an issue that crosses the aisle it gets supports from Republicans, from Democrats alike. And listening to Joseph, reading this white paper makes it clear why. This is truly a win-win-win. And what is needed is more support to help it grow and scale. And that's amidst the current crises facing small businesses. Next slide. Um, and yes, I did say crises, plural. So pre-COVID, we already had a small business crisis, given that nearly half of all job-creating small businesses are owned by retiring baby boomers. And we are deeply concerned that we will see further wealth concentration coming out of the COVID crisis as locally owned businesses close down or are bought out up by larger companies or private equity. The most recent survey by the US Chamber of Commerce came out on May 5th shows that more than one in five small businesses say that they are two months or less away from closing permanently. That's huge, right? Major crisis. And we have already seen, you've probably seen in your communities as well, some business owners just decide now's the time to close up shop um, rather than weather the crisis. And so we've been looking at ways that we might be able to help influence these businesses to keep their doors open and to transition to employee ownership. Next slide, please. We recognize that in order for businesses to be able to transition to employee ownership, they need to be alive and they need to be profitable. So our question is, and what we're in conversation with a number of potential partners about, can we provide financing paired with technical assistance to support them to weather the crisis and to do the retooling necessary for social distancing? And can we set that up in a way that incentivizes an employee ownership transition by, for example, making that financing forgivable? So we invite and welcome thought partnerships from folks who are in on this webinar today who may be interested in exploring this idea further with us. Um, but government is, of course, an obvious player in helping to keep small businesses alive. <clears throat> Excuse me. And there are important ways that governments can also help to expand employee ownership. Next slide, please. Um, one of the data points uh, in a forthcoming white paper is from a study that Corey Rosen of the National Center for Employee Ownership did of the implied savings to the federal government for paying out less unemployment because as Joseph mentioned, employee-owned businesses lay their workers off more slowly, then hire them back more quickly. Um, so this study showed an annual estimated unemployment savings of about $8 billion, with a B, $8 billion to the federal government. And it turns out that was about a 4x return on the investment that the government makes in employee ownership incentives. So if all of the other reasons to fall in love with employee ownership don't convince lawmakers, this clear return on investment should. Um, 
We've been working with a broad set of allies in our field to help shape a policy agenda for how to embed employee ownership into a resilient recovery. And so what I've got on this slide I'm going to walk through quickly um, is what we believe to be the most important component. Ultimately, the key roles that government can play are in education, loans, tax incentives, and then what we call candidate spotting or helping to spot businesses that could be good candidates for employee ownership. We would like to see the federal government do three things. First, um, provide funding to states to educate business owners about employee ownership. Second, build on the Paycheck Protection Forgivable Loan Program to roll out additional crisis financing for companies that transition to employee ownership. So what I touched on on the previous slide. Um, and third, permanently remove the barriers in the SBA loan and loan guarantee programs for employee ownership transitions. At the state level, we our ask would be, um, first, take that federal funding for education and put it to work quickly through employee ownership service providers, and also um, require that the state-funded business service providers also educate about employee ownership. Second, um, for states that have loan guarantee programs, cap these programs and make those loans forgivable, those business continuity loans forgivable for companies that transition to employee ownership. Again, what I, what I noted on the previous slide. And finally, uh, for states that have capital gains tax, waive it for employee ownership transition in order to sweeten the pot for the business owner to choose this path. Now, on the local level, cities and counties are going to be less able to invest dollars. They just aren't going to have them right now. Um, but local is where the relationships with business owners sit. Local economic development and workforce teams can serve as connectors and candidate spotters. Also, we hope that cities and counties and, and frankly states as well will think creatively about utilizing the Federal Reserve's new municipal liquidity facility to finance business preservation initiatives that include employee ownership due to its preservation of tax base. So this has been a deep dive into how government can advance employee ownership. And I know there's lots of other people sitting in on this, on this webinar in a whole range of roles. Um, so if you could advance to the next slide, uh, we wanted the folks uh, to be able, everyone participating to be able to see themselves in this work. And I won't go through all of these because um, I'm getting short on time here, but I do want to call out two in particular. First, um, city or county economic development teams and the important role that they play in being can candidate spotters and connectors. In our work at Project Equity, we partner directly with a diverse set of cities and counties in important programmatic ways. I'd be happy to get more into this in the Q&A, um, but we also work with dozens of organizations to educate them about what to look for in a business if it's a good candidate and help them refer to qualified um, employee ownership practitioners. And then second, uh, especially in today's environment, the rapid response teams at, at workforce development boards can be important first responders, also great referral partners, and they can tap layoff aversion funds for employee ownership feasibility studies. So if anybody's interested in talking more about this, please do not hesitate to contact me. I would be happy to, to help you play a role in expanding this powerful business model. So next and last slide here. Um, so as Joyce mentioned in the introduction, Project Equity works directly with businesses to quarterback the entire process of the employee ownership transition, including supporting the new employee owners for two plus years post-transaction to ensure that they and their company are really thriving in their new structure. Um, we also do have financing available through our joint initiative with a national CDFI shared capital um, that's called Accelerate Employee Ownership. We have an upcoming webinar. We'd invite you to, uh, to join if you want to learn more about how employee ownership transitions work Tuesday, June 9th. You can sign up on our website at project-equity.org um, at the events and webinars tab. And with that, I will turn it back to Joyce. Terrific. Thank you, Allison. Um, that was perfect. And great timing on our presenters. You guys are, you guys are nailing it in terms of your, your time lapse. So we'll have great time, great, lots of time for questions. And I do want to encourage folks who are listening, feel free to, to chat in a question at any time. We're taking them now and going through them so we can queue as many of them up as possible. Um, so with that, I'm going to um, thank you, Allison. Again, I'm going to turn to our final presenter, Tomas Duran. Um, Tomas is president of Concerned Capital, which is a social benefit corporation based in Los Angeles. Um, at Concerned Capital, Tomas's team developed what they call the Transfer of Ownership, or TWO program, which, as they say, it recycles manufacturing firms by transferring ownership from retiring owners to employees. 
and Tomas is also a, a thought partner to us at the Economic Opportunities Program as one of our, our job quality fellows, along with Allison. So Tomas, um, you're going to sort of laser us in on community because your work has really been deeply rooted in a specific community. You have more than 15 years of experience in local economic and business development. And now at Concerned Capital, your focus is really on providing hands-on support and engaging capital to ESOP conversions in, a, in the specific region of, of the LA area. So um, can you give us a sense of your perspectives on what's happening in your local economy as a result of the pandemic, and then how those, creation, those conditions create both opportunities as well as challenges for employee ownership conversions? Yes, thank you. Uh, hi, everybody, and thank you, Joyce and uh, Mark and Maureen, for having me today. Um, I am going to laser in into what's happening in LA, um, but I, I also want to note that much of our work happens around the country, from rural parts of Maine to the western slopes of Colorado. We're helping economic development professionals as well as businesses transition from the current ownership into something that's more diversified or, or uh, multiple owner, uh, employee ownership. In Southern California, um, I think the pandemic can best be um, impact can best be subscribed as severe and long-lasting. The Southern California Association of Governments released a report last week that estimates that the decrease in taxable sales is going to be between 26 and 38 percent over the next year and a half, and that average unemployment rates are going to be 19.3 percent this year and around 12.2 percent next year. What all that means is that a lot of people are not only out of work, but that the recovery is going to be very slow for them. And so what we're finding is that the hardest industries in Southern California, really tourism, everything is based on people traveling and coming, the hotels, the hospitality industry, um, the amusement parks, the event centers, all those things have shut down. And it's not just that we're missing out on opportunity to be entertained, it's the working people who maintain them, who do the concessions, who do the facility maintenance, who do the marketing, who do um, security, who do ushering, all those people are left um, out of work. And it's a big, big chunk of our economy. The image you see on your screen is actually um, the dozens and dozens of oil tankers that are parked in the Santa Monica and San Pedro Bays because they're unable to offload the oil. And while it doesn't get talked a lot, uh, oil is still a very large part of our local economy, as well as the activity that happens within the Port of LA and Long Beach. And we're looking at between one out of every three jobs in Southern California is tied to that enormous economic engine. So we're getting a, a, a really, um, um, severe impact. Now, there are parts of LA that aren't being affected, and that tends to be the white collar type jobs, the jobs that are, um, you know, that are based on services where you don't have to be in a location or at a uh, place to do. And those kind of jobs are, are doing okay. We're also seeing a lot of private equity activity. Um, LA is home to the family offices, whereas Silicon Valley may be the tech entrepreneurs in New York and has Wall Street and, and the hedge funds. We have the family offices. And what we're seeing is a lot of activity of people looking to pick up distressed assets, not necessarily to preserve the jobs, but because they're trying to keep the, um, those assets. So coming out of this, where we see the opportunities coming out of this, is the uh, housing is still needed. So we'll see construction coming out of that. We're also anticipating um, large investments in uh, economic development and CDBG funding, as well as public works projects. So there's going to be some economic development activity that's going to be based around public, uh, improving public infrastructure, as well as um, providing um, uh, <laughs> uh, facility maintenance and that sort of thing. But we're also seeing uh, manufacturing um, in aerospace and defense kind of holding well, as well as communication. and um, and manned aircraft, as well as um, a medical device. So we focus at Concern Capital on um, manufacturing. And the reason we do that is because it's a place-based strategy. We have the, um, Southern California has a large concentration of um, manufacturing here. It's the gateway to middle class for most of our communities. It's the, has a very low bar, uh, bar to entry for most of the, uh, for a lot of people there. And it still employs a significant number of people. It's gone down significantly, but there are still a lot of opportunities because we still manufacture garments, we manufacture food, and we manufacture a lot of the stuff that's happening in aerospace and defense. So we see those kind of, uh, uh, those places as an opportunity to, um, there you go, right there, um, to um, emerge and, and see some activity there. 
all these things, and I want to hark back to what Allison said, are, are affected by the age of the owners. You know, in the last three weeks, I've probably talked to 50 different manufacturing firms throughout Southern California. And as I'm talking to them um, for a uh, program that I work on that's funded by the Department of Defense to work with defense manufacturers. And in my conversations with them, a lot of them are looking for a capital. They're looking for some way to fund their operations going forward because the expectation is that they still have to produce parts for their customers, but the working capitals are, um, is starting to dwindle. And as we're talking, what, we're, what I'm finding is that they're looking for capital because they're no longer willing to put in their own money into the business. And they're looking for other sources of income, uh, other sources of debt because they're not sure when they're gonna be able to recapture whatever equity they put in now. They wanna keep their powder dry. And what ends up happening is the businesses start to slow down. They stop, stop growing, they stop adding people. Um, they go into a conservative mode, that, uh, a conservation mode. And really what it, at, the, at the end of it is the owner is looking for his way out. He's looking for his way, his exit. Now, one of the reasons we like working in manufacturing is because of the longevity of the people, um, of workers and the relationship between workers and owners. And what we find is a lot of these owners um, don't want to just shutter the business or sell it because they have a relationship with their employees and they want to make sure that they're okay. This slide that you're looking at now, where we're talking about post-pandemic post, uh, transition, um, when that owner decides that they are ready to retire and they are ready to sell the business or dispose of the assets, they basically have five different options. They have speculators, investors who are very active right now. They're very well funded and are very um, busy picking up companies. You have their competitors that aren't as active anymore, but would just buy the company for the assets. You have dismantlers that are just looking at the um, resale of the machinery and maybe some intellectual property. You have employees and insiders who want to keep the going, business going as an ongoing concern. And then you have the liquidators who are just waiting to pick up that distressed asset at a steep discount that they can then turn around and, and make some money on. Right now, the liquidators are kind of waiting in the wings for everything, you know, for waiting for that falling knife to, to stop falling so they can pick it up and, and pick up that distressed asset. Dismounters are just kind of on hold. The competitors aren't doing very much because they're trying to stay alive themselves. It's really the speculators um, and private equity people and the employees who have the opportunity to do some, uh, to pick up some businesses right now. Let's go to the next slide, please. The challenge though, is that when an owner wants to sell his business, his perspective on the value of that business is gonna be very different than the person buying it. And in this image that you see here, you have one person on one side saying there's four, and the same person looking at the same object is saying that there's three. And what we do as an organization is help figure out how do you get to yes between those two entities? Because the owner is valuing goodwill. It's an intangible property. It's, they're, they're valuing this business that they've spent a big chunk of their life building and put a lot of time and energy into and have a lot of emotional connection to. A third party who's just looking to purchase the assets is not looking at any of those intangible things. But the employees are. And the employees will often understand a business far better than anyone can just by reviewing spreadsheets or looking at the EBITDA and doing their own analysis. It's like selling your house to your brother or your sister. You know, they know it's a good house, but they're also going to understand that, you know, there's going to be some things that need to be maintained and they, they have that kind of insider knowledge. Let's go to the next slide. So when what we do is help the owner see, look, if you do sell it to the, to the workers, uh, just like Joseph and Allison mentioned earlier, there's a ton of great benefits, just a lot of reasons why you should do it. But the key, always thing to keep in mind is that this is risk. Now, the image here, you see a young man standing on a ledge in Yosemite. This is at the top of the Yosemite Falls Trail, which is a 2,600-foot climb up that takes about six and a half hours to do. The reason I have that on there is because what we're asking the employees to do involves taking a risk that their perception May, may feel overwhelming, may, feel, may be terrifying. I did this route and for much of it, I did it on my hands and knees because I was terrified of the height. Now, my perception was that it was unsafe or scary. All the other people walking and passing me up, you know, quickly or running up the trail were fine with it, but it was my perception. And so we never wanna lose sight that we're asking people to risk their assets and their hard earned treasure on something that involves risk. So let's go to the next slide which is why it needs support. Doing this in a vacuum doesn't work. There's always gonna need entities like Project Equity, like um, the Workforce Development Boards, like the foundations that can provide different resources and services, like the Democracy at Work Initiative that's pushing the ideas and, tech and, and concepts forward. 
so that um, this is not only accepted as something, but that there's places people know to go for help. Now, manufacturers, it's, it's a little challenging because manufacturers don't go into business because they're very social people and they want to network a lot. They go in because they want to make stuff. So we have, you know, there's, there's a higher bar there to, to get people to engage. But outside of that realm, there's a lot of opportunities. And I, I want to hold up the work done by Inclusive Action for the City and Cooperación Santa Ana, which are two local groups that are working with people on the ground in the communities to not only promote employee ownership, but are helping these micro-entrepreneurs take control of their own financial destiny by operating a business. And I would just close on, this is not a, by no means an inclusive list, but and Allison mentioned a lot of the things that are on here from the tax credits to the economic development uh, programs to foundations. But what I do want to highlight is that there's a role through, um, like Allison said, identifying these businesses, but also making it more mainstream and accepted as something that sh uh, should be pursued. So I want to thank everybody and uh, Aspen for uh, the time to um, share this information. And I think we're ready for questions. Absolutely. Yes, we are. So we're going to, we're going to get right into it. Um, so the first thing I want to ask you all is we've had a lot of questions from folks as part of the registration process, even before we even got onto the webinar about where one can or should get resources to do the kind of work. I think the kind of work, Allison and, and Tomas, that you're talking about on the ground, um, the work to identify and support organizations. So if you could speak a little bit to um, where have you gotten funding in the past? Is there anything in some of the recently passed um, relief and recovery programs to address the pandemic that could be used towards that end? And, and is there something else you think, let's start with the federal government, something else the federal government should be doing as it thinks about um, how we rebuild our economy? Um, I'm gonna start, Allison, maybe if you wanna start us off on that, on that question, you, you talked a little bit about that, but talk a little bit about the resource question, if you would. Yeah, so, um, you know, my answer is a little bit different now than it would have been if we were sitting in, on February 19th um, before, before COVID hit. Um, you know, February 19th, we were seeing local governments, um, an increasing number of local governments investing in uh, partnerships to advance employee ownership, to reach out to, to business owners, especially long-standing businesses and communities that have um, you know, really an outsized impact uh, on, on tax revenue because they're, they're you know, higher revenue businesses. Um, and we're, we saw the, the, the sources of this financing coming from several different places, you know, general funds from cities, um, special grants that cities had, um, CDBG funding. So CDBG funding is, I think, an important source for us to be looking at now, as well as, um, you know, back in, in, in mid-February. Um, and then, you know, I did mention the, the rapid response teams uh, at the, the layoff aversion funds um, from the, the Workforce Development Board. But you know, back to that ROI calculation that I shared um, about the federal government seeing a four times return on, on their current investment in employee ownership. Um, you know, if we just saw the federal government put a, a, a few billion dollars in one of their next release packages to, to support um, employee ownership, if we saw them um, you know, adding adding a, a few billion dollars to some of the to some of the um, loan programs to be able to 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 tie it to to businesses that are doing well by their workers, employee ownership and other strategies, high road workplaces. You know, it it's relative to the to the need in the economy and the dollars that are being poured in. This is a strategy that that has a clear return on investment. So. The, you know, that one slide that outlines how we would recommend government engaging does have a, a list of all of the different ways that we would think about it. Yeah, I would just add, so we did a program about four years ago with the city of Los Angeles using rapid response money and, and with the layoff for virgin money to train their business uh, outreach people on identifying businesses and then we transitioned. We transitioned, uh, the result was one job for every thousand dollars of the grant that we had. One job for every thousand dollars. So it's very efficient. And I think that uh, we, from WIOA's 2014, being proactive and going out there and engaging, that's a, it's one of the required strategies. So it's already in the law. It's just a matter of training people and getting them comfortable with doing that part of it. You know, we're just making a small adjustment to existing funding. Now, the other thing is EDA. 
the Economic Development Administration is going to supercharge a lot of revolving loan funds. Uh, my business partner, Bruce Staub, um, really cut his teeth in this space back in the 90s after the uh, Northridge earthquake, doing revolving, uh, using a revolving loan fund to help businesses that had been basically affected by the quake, helping the uh, employees buy those operating businesses and um, set them on recovery because the owner didn't want to or wasn't able to or didn't want to put in the time and energy and money to restart the business. So there's a bunch of proven stuff here that, that, um, that I think works and is tried and true uh, around, but I would definitely look at EDA um, and money um, in addition to the CEBG uh, that Allison mentioned. Tomas, do you want, is this the right place to give a shout out to some of the work you've been doing with Democracy at Work Initiative and something you're gonna put out soon with them? Oh yeah, thank you. Um, so we uh, were funded by uh, the Kellogg, um, Kellogg Foundation through a grant, uh, through our fiscal agent. Um, to do some work and create some modeling for alternative uh, financial structures to help transitions. So the initial one was what we would call something a bargain sale. When you take a distressed business and you're able to um, purchase it through an assignment for benefit of creditors. Um, and given how many businesses are likely gonna be declaring bankruptcy, here's an opportunity for employees to use this model to go into um, the bankruptcy court and say, hey, we wanna buy this business and keep it going on going concern. Then they get control of the business for a lower price without all, all the other debt and obligations that the prior owner had amassed as they were um, operating before them. Um, we're also looking, uh, there's also a model in there for a two steps process, which involves a, an intermediary that would purchase the operating business, hold it while the employees are um, incubated, the co-op is incubated, and then the exit is the employee purchase of that business. This works pretty well with private equity and with other funders who are mission-based who want to see that as an outcome. And we've been getting approached by a lot of private equity firms who are looking to incorporate that into their exit strategy. Interesting. And that, that, should be, that should be, I'm sorry, that, that'll be shared um, hopefully later this week or, or, or next week as, we're, uh, as we roll that out. Terrific, terrific. And Joseph, anything you want to add? You're, you're always a big policy thinker. I want to add something uh, practical. So I, I've been studying uh, these uh, employee management uh, buyout transactions. And I think it's very important just that we're all on the same wavelength to just very briefly, just sort of in less than one minute, understand. Because people might say, my God, how in a crisis can, can employees who are having trouble putting, putting their lives together, ordering food uh, uh, by, their, by their company? So basically, uh, everybody needs to realize that most people who buy businesses don't use their cash or their savings, uh, they, use, they use credit. And uh, investment banker Lewis Kelso invented the leverage ESOP. And basically what employees do is they set up uh, an ESOP, employee stock ownership plan, a worker co-op, an employee ownership trust. Uh, and then this vehicle uh, borrows money um, to buy the company on behalf of the employees and the company pays back the loan itself. The workers are not using their wages. They're not using their savings. They're not giving collateral uh, on the loan. Now, in order to do this, one thing must be, must be possible. It's just like getting a mortgage to buy your house. Uh, your house really has to be worth something. And uh, so you have to have a company that has a good credit history, that has a good sales history. Now, typically speaking, and I'll, I'll end in just a few seconds, for companies that have hard assets, like manufacturing companies, you don't need the federal government. Commercial banks and, and all kinds of banks and lenders out there are willing to loan money for companies that have hard assets uh, to do these leverage bot employee buyouts. But the problem is we have a lot of companies in the economy that are service companies, which don't have hard assets. And that's a situation where the Small Business Administration's new Main Street Employee Ownership Act that has loan guarantees uh, can help. And, and where you need some partnering uh, from the groups that uh, uh, Thomas uh, and Duran uh, have mentioned. But the important thing is to sort of get out of your mind that the employees are reaching into their pocket uh, and, buy, and buying the company. Uh, they're basically using, using credit, which the company pays back. And if it's a sound company with a positive uh, past and a likely future, commercial banks and other lenders will provide that credit. Can I just, one thing on Joseph, and I agree with 100% on what Joseph's saying for, for the ESOP. Um, our clients and, and the things that we do are generally um, key manager buyouts um, that transition into a wider um, uh, diversified ownership. So the transition to 100% ownership isn't always on that first day. 
we do use 7A loans, we use 504 loans, we use a number of different existing programs. And in those cases, the small employee group that we're working with will put some treasure up as collateral or we'll bring in an investor uh, or a partner like the working world or any of the other mission-based project equity, any of the other mission-based entities that have funding specifically for that purpose. I think that there's gonna be a need of variety of approaches to make this work. We try and do the, um, or our approach is to try and be as market as, as possible so that it can spread uh, as wide as possible, whether or not the owner is uh, socially motivated to create a co-op um, and they just wanna exit, that's great. And then we'll figure out how that, how that works. But um, I think th th it's definitely worth uh, noting that there's, there's a number of different strategies going for to go forward. So now a question that brings us back into the, the pandemic and things have shifted. Um, does the pandemic change the types of businesses that are the best candidates for transitions to employee ownership? And um, how does the profile, this is sort of a two-part question, <laughs> how does the profile of which businesses are good candidates right now align with the sectors and the industries that have large numbers of frontline workers, particularly in those sectors where we've seen lower levels of job quality, where we've seen higher levels of the workforce being women and people of color who are in those frontline jobs. So sort of bringing those together those two things, like which companies are good candidates right now and how does that align with the, the places where we m might be most worried about job quality and raising job quality? Anyone wanna take a first stab at that? Joseph. Yeah, I'll, I'll take a first stab at that. First of all, I, I'm not sure that we can we can easily uh, uh, predict the future, but I think mm -hmm. two things can be said based on research that we have. Uh, first of all, uh, the two industrial sectors that are large, at least in the ESOP world, are manufacturing firms that have hard assets and uh, uh, and history uh, and a uh, future-looking. Uh, 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 opportunity for sales and professional service firms uh, that have a, an existing client base. Uh, um, um, we're also seeing uh, construction firms as the third. Th those three industrial groups account for a large number of the ESOPs that have gotten credit uh, over the last 30 years uh, in the United States. So I can sort of say, I can say that. Um, uh, that's what we can learn from research. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I would say go hug, go go and find your local economic development specialist and give them a hug. Um, because I think that you're going to need a place-based strategy to figure out what works for your area, and okay. those economic development strategies should know. For example, manufacturing makes a ton of sense in Southern California. It doesn't in other places, in uh, in the Kansas and 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 the uh, in the area around Kansas, they have a program. Uh, called Red Tire that's helping recycle existing veterinary services and local small businesses that are providing the services that are key to those local economies. I think what ends up happening is you gotta find a reason why the business is there, a reason why it can stay there and continue to grow. And then the, the, the champions who are gonna help take it over to make it work and go forward. I, I think that I like manufacturing because it's primary jobs, prevents a path to wealth and prevents a path to growth. But again, you've got to look at what's local and um, what is going to be able to continue to have that demand there. Yeah, and I'll just add, add a couple quick thoughts, which is mm -hmm. I love what right. both just and Tomasa said. Um, uh, the, the, the reason that we think it's so important to pair the, the business continuity support with thinking about employee ownership is because you know, businesses that had strong financial um, fundamentals on in middle of February of last year, those are the ones we want to start with. And then we want to look at, well, you know, what do we think that the coming recession is going to do to those businesses? And if there are ways that we can help them retool effectively more quickly to be able to take advantage of the, the economic opportunities, the modified economic opportunities that are ahead of, of small businesses, that's a critically important piece of the puzzle. Great. Um, Joseph, did you have one more thing you wanted to add there? Yeah, just, just before very, I go to the very, next question. Very quickly, yeah. uh, if you're associated or observing a business that is being taken over by private equity, uh, you should know we've had several conferences over the last two years at, at Rutgers on this, um, that there are a number of private equity firms that have come up with models to use uh, broad-based employee shares and profit sharing to include the employees in acquiring portfolio companies. 
So there are models to do that too. Absolutely. Great. Um, so let's think about from the perspective of the business owner. Um, if a business owner is thinking she wants to transition her business at some point to employee ownership, um, what should she be thinking about as she starts or builds her company to set herself up to transition? Or if they're thinking about, they've already built the business and they're thinking, who should they be reaching out to locally? Um, how do they find the person they want <laughs> or the person who can help them? Um, I know there's networks of folks out there that you might want to talk about. So, um, Tomas, you look like you're nodding your head. What would you suggest? Oh, I, I, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of networks. I would suggest uh, reaching, out, reaching out to your local economic development professionals, the SBDC networks. Um, there's a lot of um, uh, information and support, and a lot of states have employee ownership centers um, that you can go and get resources for. Um, and I think that the, the primary thing I would be thinking about is, um, what do you need to retire? What does that look like for you? Lump sum payment, ongoing support, ongoing benefits. Are you trying to preserve your legacy? Are you trying to make sure that the business is set up to continue to be able to grow? What level of uh, uh, involvement can you have post-purchase uh, to support them? Um, and then I would look at who's the champion, who's going to be the person that's going to really be the one to carry it forward and make sure that every, you know, the, the employees that want to be involved are involved and can go forward. And then the third thing is, where are you going to get working capital to support them? Because after the transition, working capital is going to be one of the hardest things to raise. And it's going to be a great challenge. So I would go through that thought process. A succession plan is something that we do a lot with our clients to help not only have them feel better about the transition, but also for the other people who are funding and involved get more comfortable. There's groups like the Exit Planning Institute. Um, which are also um, skilled at exit planning, but they don't necessarily, not for the outcome of, a, of an employee takeover. So you make sure you want to pull in the other information uh, to get involved, to get the employees involved. Mm -hmm. Allison, you've been doing a lot of local network building around this. So what would you add here? Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, there are in, in, in different parts of the country, there are hot spots of employee ownership. Um, there are, are both worker co-ops uh, organizations and uh, and you can can look up at the Democracy Work Institute has a workers to owners collaborative of the, of many of the leading um, work worker co-op focused employee ownership organizations. There are also many many great ESOP practitioners. The National Center for Employee Ownership is a great place to go um, for information on um, ESOPs. And there are, are um, uh, yeah, depending on the community, there are also local networks as well. And I would say, you know, in terms of a specific business and their planning process for employee ownership, they want to be thinking about um, what's the management transition? Yeah. How am I building up somebody, hopefully from within the business, to be, be able to step into my shoes so that when I go away, the whole business doesn't fall apart? And then what's the culture? Uh, how am I investing in, in a, an engaged culture among my employees? Um, there's, there's many other things I could speak to, but those are the, the top two. Um, Joseph, one thing, um, just wondering if you can speak to this question, um, do you, any insights into the biggest reasons why attempts to create an ESOP or other employee ownership structure break down or fail, and how do you avoid those? Well, I think there would be, there would be three reasons. Uh, one is uh, uh, trying to rescue a failing firm uh, that's likely not going to, uh, not, not going to work. Uh, with either an ESOP or a worker co-op or an employee ownership trust. Uh, secondly, uh, not dealing with the firm uh, that has a, a solid, uh, solid credit history, expectation of future sales. It's kind of saying the first thing, but in a slightly different, uh, different way. Mm -hmm. Thirdly, a firm that has really bad labor management relations. It's unlikely you're going to be able to cure them uh, uh, unless you really address that very, very uh, very, very seriously. So I think those are three things. I would say a fourth thing is uh, a firm uh, whose market has gone away or is, or is, or is going away. Uh, unless the, the new uh, uh, a company in, includes some new markets, new ideas, uh, new, new, new innovations, um, you know, you don't want to do uh, an employee management buyout 
uh, in a buggy whip company when automobiles <laughs> have just been discovered. Right. And so that's potentially a challenge in the current context is we're going to have to figure out what's happening in terms of the strength of some of the businesses that may be transitioning, given that it's, we're in a very uncertain economic context. But I do want to say, especially in, in, in communities of color, uh, especially in African-American communities, neighborhoods, uh, there are uh, communities which, which depend for really good jobs and a small number of family-owned businesses where the owners need to retire. And this is something to look at, has a uh, larger impact uh, on, those, on those communities. Great. Well, thank you, Joseph. I'm looking at our time and we're right up at three o'clock and we commit ourselves to finishing on time. So I wanna thank again, all three of our presenters, Joseph, Allison, and Tomas for being with us today and, and for your ongoing partnership and thought leadership on that. Um, Thanks to, uh, again to Prudential um, for its support of the webinar series and our body of work at EOP around job quality. Um, thanks for the team here at EOP who do a great, such an amazing job in putting together and supporting these webinars. And they will be the team that posts um, both the recording and the slides. So you can uh, follow up from us, uh, follow up and find the links that we've referenced there. Um, and thank all of you for, um, for joining us today um, and uh, stay safe everyone. Thank Take you. Care. Bye. Thank, Thank you, you everyone. Bye everybody.